take your copy of God's Word and turn with me this evening to the book of Luke. It has been a good day. I know it's been a little different for you all with John English preaching in the morning, but me in the evening. Hopefully I can send you home well prepared for the week just as he does every Sunday night. If you remember the last time I was in the Gospel of Luke, we were looking at the transfiguration in Luke chapter 9. We are now picking up with that narrative in the next story. So we'll be looking tonight at Luke chapter 9, verses 37 through 43. On the next day, when they had come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth and shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, How long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. While he was coming, the demon threw him to the ground and convulsed him. But Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. Let us pray. Lord, you are so good to us. Day after day after day, we are recipients of your tender mercies. You are patient and long-suffering with faultful creatures. You give, give such good gifts, Lord, and you give repeatedly to sons and daughters who fall short. You are at work, Lord, always to conform us to your holiness. Our prayer is that you would once again, Lord, lead and guide and conform our hearts through the ministry of your truth. May we behold Christ. May we be more like Christ. May our love for Christ be deeper still. We pray all this in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen. What are significant times in your life when you have been rebuked? I think we can all probably say, yeah, I've been been rebuked several times by my parents, right? Many times as you were growing up, there were things that you did, you know, wrong, ways that you broke the rules. Probably even as a teenager, there were things that your parents had repeatedly taught you that somehow you just found yourself again, once again, going against what mom and dad had told you and you received a rebuke. Maybe it was an employer, a boss, for something you did not do correctly. Maybe it was your spouse, and it was needed, and you were thankful. Maybe it was another situation where, you know, you have someone who who wisely spoke into your life, and, and, and maybe it was a dear friend, maybe it was someone who was a mentor who just helped you to see that your thinking wasn't good or biblical or right, and, and so they gave you a very kind and godly rebuke to bring to help bring your thinking back in alignment with scripture 
Well, we have a rebuke tonight in our text from the mouth of Jesus. And it was one that was needed. Sometimes we associate rebukes with something that's negative. We associate a rebuke with something done in harshness and and anger and out of frustration. But that's not the heart of Jesus. Jesus is the the gentle and lowly Jesus, but we want to always remember he is not just the gentle and lowly Jesus. He is our king who determines our days and commands our submission. And so when Jesus gives a rebuke, we can be absolutely certain that it is needed and that it is stated in a way that is perfectly in alignment with the loving and holy character of our Savior. As I said earlier, the last time we were in Luke, we explored the story of Christ's transfiguration. Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain, Mount Miron, to pray. And there before them, he was transfigured. He appeared in gleaming white, surrounded by a splendor of light. And not only that, Moses and Elijah appeared alongside him to help him prepare for his coming suffering. It is interesting to note, just biblically, that Moses had met with God before on Mount Sinai, back when Israel had been delivered out of Egypt, that Elijah had, in a way, communed with God in prayer on, on, on the mountain as well, when he called down fire on the false prophets, right? So these two figures appeared alongside him. Peter was so overcome with the sight of it all that he wanted to set up three tents so that they could all stay on the mountaintop. Then God the Father himself engulfed Mount Miron in a luminous cloud and spoke from heaven saying, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. The majesty of God was displayed on that mountaintop for a precious few. Now as we continue in Luke 9 tonight, We see the majesty of God manifested down on the plain for the multitudes. So let's consider three different persons or groups in our text tonight and and what's going on with them. First, we see the Father seeking the supremacy of Christ. We see the Father seeking the supremacy of Christ. Back to verse 37. On the next day, when they come down from the mountain, a great crowd met him. In other words, met Jesus. Of the three synoptic gospels, Mark actually has the longest account with the most information of what happened immediately after the transfiguration as they came down the mountain. At just seven verses, Luke's account is the shortest. And the reason that Luke's account is the shortest is because Luke wants to move quickly to connect the majesty of Christ on the mountain with the majesty of Christ on the plain. We know by this point in his earthly ministry, large crowds gathered wherever Jesus was seen. So when Christ came down the mountain with his three disciples, a multitude was waiting there with him at the bottom with the other nine. Mark gives us, again, a little more information. He tells us that the religious leaders were there, scribes were there, arguing with the disciples. There also seemed to just be a great expression of need, as there always was among crowds that gathered to Jesus. And so, whatever sense of elation these disciples carried with them from the transfiguration the previous day, that was quickly swallowed up by this human need. Out of this noise and turmoil stepped an exasperated father with a heart-rendering plea. Look there in the text. He says, teacher, 
I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit seizes him, and he suddenly cries out. It convulses him so that he foams at the mouth. It shatters him and will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. The language that the father is using here to describe the condition of a son is very emphatic. I mean, he says here, he sh- it shatters him. Everything this demon is doing to his boy, he is doing to destroy him. Mark, again, gives us the additional detail that this demon also made the boy sometimes throw himself into a fire or into water, specifically to kill him. So you can only imagine the difficulty and heartache that is faced by these parents. How would you feel never being able to get a moment's rest really not not really rest out of fear that when you woke your child would be dead how would you feel never having to let your child out of your sight because of what could happen to him you know maybe you know if there's a mother and father involved you know the father's like okay you know mother you sleep i'll watch him for a while then you wake up and i'll say you know always we have to have we've got to go take care of this matter so we have to have a sibling watch them or we have to have another family member present. And imagine these times when this, when this demon threw this boy into convulsions. Just, just having to grab him and hold him so he didn't injure himself up against anything. Seeing your son time after time after time, his eyes roll back in his head, foaming at the mouth, writhing on the ground. And no one seems able to help you. No doubt that this boy had many scars from injuries he had received in the course of these violent convulsions. And so, rightly, imagine being parents in that situation, hearing of the wonderful things that Jesus was able to do and his disciples were doing. Think to yourself, yes, maybe there's finally an answer for my son. And so this father sought out Jesus and his disciples. He found the disciples of Christ there at the foot of Mount Miron, and he begged them. He pleaded with them, please cast this demon out of my boy. And the disciples were unable to do it. And this was really strange considering that right back at the beginning of this chapter, we see Jesus giving his disciples the authority to do this very thing, right? Even in the parallel passages, Mark records it for us, Luke records it, uh, Matthew records it. God, Jesus told his disciples, go forth proclaiming the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out demons. Jesus had given his disciples the ability to deal with this very kind of thing, and yet they failed. Why? Their failure does teach us two very important things or remind us of two very important things. Number one, man is always deficient in his ability to serve God. You and I, no matter how well we are walking with the Lord, we will always be deficient in our ability to serve God. You know why? Because you and I have no power or ability in and of ourselves to do anything. Jesus tells us, right, apart from me, you can do nothing. What the disciples had was a delegated authority to exercise a delegated power. 
So what was their failure? The failure of the disciples was due to their unbelief. Again, we know this more so from the parallel passages where they actually ask Jesus the question, why weren't we able to cast out this demon? And Jesus tells them, this this kind can only come out by prayer. What is prayer? Prayer is dependence upon the Lord. The failure of the disciples is due to their unbelief. They had either taken the authority given to them for granted, or they had come to believe that the power and authority that they exercised was somehow inherent to themselves. Either way, they were not looking to God and depending upon God in faith as they sought to do the work of the kingdom. So because of their unbelief, they failed to cast out this demon. Now thankfully, the faltering inability of the disciples did not result in the father giving up and leaving. It's not like he brought his son, he begged them to heal him, they tried to heal him, they tried to cast out the demon, and they were unsuccessful, and the father said, oh no, and he turned around and went home. That would be tragic. No, the father stayed there with his son, hoping and believing that when Jesus arrived, he would be able to do what the disciples could not do. His actions proved on some level that he believed more about Christ, that he at some level believed in the supremacy of Christ. Even though these other men may not help me, Jesus can help me. You know, brothers and sisters, when your life is falling apart, when every other possibility at relief fails you, do you yet believe in Christ? We are going to go through all sorts of ebbs and flows in our life. We're going to go through times where we're so busy that our walk with Christ gets squeezed. And the stress is going to continue to build and we are going to be squeezed. At the times when we should be clinging to Christ, we will find that all we can do is cling to what seems to be right in front of us. In that moment, we need to remember the supremacy of Christ. There's going to be times where we are so wounded by circumstances. Perhaps we've been in a place where we suffered abuse. Perhaps we've been in a place where we've been betrayed. Perhaps we've been in a place where we've been falsely accused of something. In those moments, when it seems we have nowhere to turn, That is when we need to remember we always have Christ. Maybe we're going through something that has made us fearful and anxious. We feel overwhelmed. Perhaps at the other extent of this, we're going through something that is so full of pressure that it drives us towards a depression. In those moments, we need to remember not only are we not in control but that we have a Savior who exercises perfect control. Go to the supremacy of Christ. Christ is exactly who we need to trust when every other worldly option fails us. Now, you might ask the question then, Pastor Sean, what if, what if I have gone to Christ? And what if I have kept going to Christ and yet I don't see relief This is one of those challenging truths of the reality of living in this sinful world, brothers and sisters. Christ 
may not often relieve your pressure. He may not often take away your circumstances. He may not always heal or restore, but He will always be with you. He will never leave you or forsake you. His forgiveness is boundless. His grace is sufficient. His presence will never be lost to you. His wisdom will always be lavished upon you. And so go to Him. Don't stop going just because you don't get the answer that you wanted. Remember a little later in the book of Luke, another nine chapters down the way, Luke 18. Jesus told them a parable to the effect that they always ought to pray and not lose heart. And so Jesus said, in a certain city, this is Luke 18 too, there was a judge who neither feared God nor respected man. And there was a widow in that city who kept coming to him saying, give me justice against my adversary. And for a while he refused. But afterward he said to himself, you know what? Though I neither fear God nor respect men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will give her justice so that she will not beat me down by her continual coming. And the Lord said to her, hear what the unrighteous judge says. Will not God give justice to his elect who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long over them? I tell you, he will give justice to them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Trust in the Lord. Keep praying. Keep going. For he is He is your answer. He is your peace, your consolation, your relief, even when the circumstances of this world do not abate. And understand that even when your faith falters, His faith is enough for you. When you fail to trust, Jesus trusts for you. When you're at the end of your strength, Jesus endures for you. When you struggle to love and and see the sovereign hand of God even in your difficulties, Jesus carries you. And this is why we could say with Job, Job 13, 15, though he slay me, yet I will trust in him. So that's the Father. We have the Father seeking the supremacy of Christ Secondly, we have Jesus rebuking the faithless and demonic. Jesus rebuking the faithless and the demonic. Look at verse 41. Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear bear with you? As As we come to the second point, it might seem to us that Jesus isn't being very Christ like, right? That seems kind of strange to say, right? Jesus doesn't seem to be very Christ like. This rebuke seems to be very impatient and exasperated. You know, this it seems like Jesus is just throwing out his frustration at this point. And I would suggest to you that we probably hear it that way because this is the kind of stuff we say when we feel this way, right? When we feel that way. But this is where we need to be cautious. You and I are sinners. Even even our best and most righteous actions are still tainted by our corruption. And so guess what? Even when I'm rebuking one of my children for yet again, you know, not following my authority, and I think I'm being Christ-like, 
even then I have to be aware of that element of Sean Matthew always looking out for his own kingdom rather than the kingdom of Christ, right? But let's remember that Jesus is our perfect, sinless Son of God. His rebuke comes from a heart of love. Jesus would never be sinfully angry. He would never fail to be patient. Nor would he ever be accusatory, demeaning, or unloving. What he says here is a strong rebuke, coupled with a rhetorical question, which serves to make it clear to everyone present, and particularly his other nine disciples who were listening, he was making it clear to all of them that they were continuing to struggle with unbelief even as his time on earth was drawing to an end. And he was indeed rebuking them. A rebuke is a, is a strong admonishment against incorrect behavior, right? Against wrong behavior. He is indeed rebuking them, but his rebuke, even here, comes from a heart of love, not sinful anger or frustration. One commentator noted that part of what drove this rebuke was likely this distinct difference between what Christ experienced on the mountain the day before versus the plain below right now. You see, the day before had been a wonderful time of encouragement and prayer and glorified communion on the Mount of Transfiguration. Now, as Christ had come down from the mountain into this ruckus, he felt like a stranger in the midst of unbelief. You know, you think about that. Coming down from that mountaintop experience, the transfiguration where Jesus was able to hear the audible voice of his heavenly father, this is my son. Imagine the glory of that, the reassurance that gave him in his humanity. Jesus came down from that to be greeted by a father whose heartache and despair for his son was overwhelming. Jesus had seen many such persons and his heart always ached to see the, the effects of sin. Jesus was also met there by multitudes. Many, no doubt, who had come to see him before, but most of those multitudes, they were just looking for a sideshow. They just wanted to see the signs and wonders. They didn't really come with believing hearts. And then there were the scribes and the religious leaders who were, who were there always questioning, always trying to undermine his ministry, always looking for evidence on which to convict him of a capital crime. And then finally, there were his own disciples. There were the other nine disciples there at the bottom of the mountain waiting for him, men whom he had an intimate relationship with, men whom he had poured himself into diligently. He had taught them so many things. He had even granted them divine authority. And yet there were the nine of them standing at the bottom of the mountain going, oh, I don't know. They were befuddled, shrugging their shoulders. I don't know why we couldn't do it. So Jesus first rebuked them for being faithful. If we piece together the timeline from the Gospels and we look at what the disciples had been doing recently as a group, it seems that their unbelief and prayerlessness had developed in just about a week. In a mere matter of six or seven days, these nine men have drifted from dependence upon God to dependence upon themselves. How quickly can that happen, brothers and sisters? Secondly, Jesus also says that they had become twisted, which means something that is distorted, corrupt, or misinterpreted. Commentators are pretty unified on this being a direct reference to the famous Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. 
In Deuteronomy 32, God, through Moses, warns his people of the consequences of becoming a twisted and perverse people devoid of faith in Yahweh. And that song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32 was a well-known part of the liturgy in Jewish synagogues at this time. So almost every Jew who faithfully attended synagogue would have heard this rebuke of Jesus and been taken in their own minds and hearts immediately back to that warning of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. Every Jew would have understood this reference. Jesus was effectively saying, saying to them, listen, you have become the very kind of people that Moses warned about. And now this is beautiful. This is beautiful. What solution did Jesus offer them? He offered them himself. He offered them himself. Look at, look at how it goes in the text. Look there. Oh, faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? That's his rebuke. That's the question. And then what does that follow? What follows that? Bring your son here. When Jesus says, bring your son here, he's effectively saying to them, I will make it right. I am the solution. He would show them again a fresh revelation of the power and the glory of God. Now, the demon in the boy, he didn't want anything to do. and He didn't want any part of what Christ was about to do. So, of course, the demon in the boy threw the boy to the ground in convulsions rather than allowing him to walk over to the Savior. Mark, again, corresponds and tells us that the boy was writhing on the ground and foaming at the mouth. And so picture this again in your sanctified imagination. There's this multitude of people. Jesus says, bring the boy here. As the boy takes his first few steps forward, this demon takes over again, throws him to the ground. He's, he's writhing in the dirt, on the ground, drooling and foaming at the mouth, mutely staring up at his father through terror-filled eyes. But there was Jesus, the most compassionate and powerful man ever to walk the face of the earth. And what does Jesus do? He ended the boy's suffering. He made him whole once again. He rebuked the demon. As with every other exorcism that Christ performed, when the Lord of glory spoke, the demon had to obey. Satan and his minions seek to oppose and undermine the glory of God in every possible way they can. They hate humanity because we are made in the image of God and because we are objects of God's special concern. Therefore, the demons, they seek to manipulate us, to tempt us, to possess human beings with the ultimate goal of destroying as many of us as possible. Yet even as powerful as they are, they must flee at the rebuke of God Jesus healed the boy and gave him back to his father. Stop and think about that. Isn't that just a great picture of what Jesus does for every single one of us? Every single one of us that Christ calls to himself, this is what he does. He sets us free from our bondage to sin. He sets us free from the domain of darkness. He sets us free from the prince of the power of the air. He heals us. He cleanses us from our sins. He gives us a new mind and a new heart in regeneration. He brings us into union with himself. 
And by virtue of that union with him, he clothes us in his very own righteousness. The very righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Why? So that we may be presented back to our heavenly father, justified in his sight. Spiritually, brothers and sisters, we're no different than this boy. Completely unable to affect or accomplish any aspect of our salvation. But Christ, in his grace, sets us free from this body of sin and death and lavishes his tender mercies upon us. Are you trusting in Christ? This very day, is he your Savior? Even to some of our young ones here in the room, don't feel like this is just big church. Christ has come for all. Even from your childhood, you too can trust in and look to Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Are you trusting Him? He alone is our salvation. For those of us who are saved, we would be reminded from this as those who have experienced that grace. We can never be separated from Him. And that truth that if we are truly His, we can never lose our salvation, that truth should lead us to be careful of drifting away. Well, that takes us finally to the very last verse of this text in my third point. We saw the Father seeking the supremacy of Christ. We saw Jesus rebuking unbelief and, and the demonic. And finally, we see the people astonished at the majesty of Christ. Verse 43, and all were astonished at the majesty of God. And this is what's interesting. The failure of the disciples to be able to cast out this particular demon created a unique opportunity for the superiority and the uniqueness of Christ to be witnessed once again by the multitudes. What the disciples could not do, Jesus did very easily. And then he gave the boy back to his father. The splendor of God displayed on the mountain the day before had now been made apparent to the multitudes down below. And it's at this point that I want to conclude my sermon by taking us on a very brief journey in biblical theology. As we think about the whole context here, the Mount of Transfiguration, and then what happened afterward, as we think about God incarnate communing with Elijah and Moses on the mountaintop, I cannot help but see some relationship between what happened here and what happened in Exodus 32. You remember Exodus 32, that's when the people of Israel, they'd come to Mount Sinai, right? Moses got them settled. He warned them not to even touch the mountain lest they would die. The people had set up camp, and then Moses went up on the mountain to commune with God, to receive the commandments of God. And you remember what happened while Moses was up there? I mean, the people of Israel, they had been through an amazing deliverance. They had been brought out of their slavery in Egypt with signs and wonders, the likes of which the world had never seen before. I mean, they should have been rock solid in their faith, right? But what happened while Moses was on the mountain? God's mediator went up the mountain to meet with God, received the Ten Commandments. When the people felt that Moses had been up there too long, they had Aaron forge a golden calf, and they began worshiping that golden calf in revelry and song. When Moses heard it, he came down from the mountain. You remember what he did? He smashed the tablets of the Ten Commandments to pieces. 
He set the golden calf on fire, and after he burned it, he had that golden calf ground into powder, and he threw it in the water, and he made the people drink of its bitterness. Moses then called the sons of Levi to his side, and he sent the sons of Levi throughout the camp with the sword, and they slayed over 3,000 men in Israel. And even after that, God additionally sent a plague upon the people for their sin against him. So, in Exodus 32, God was communing with Moses on the mountaintop, and the people down below had given themselves over to unbelief. Moses came down the mountain to rebuke them, to pour out wrath and exact judgment. Contrast that with Luke 9. In Luke 9, God was once again communing with Moses on the mountaintop, and the people down below have given themselves over to unbelief. Only this time, God came down the mountain to rebuke them. But he didn't come in anger. He didn't come in bitterness. He did not come with a sword or with a plague. God came down the mountain to bring healing and grace. To show his people his power and majesty. My dear brothers and sisters, we should be astonished in awe of that kind of grace. Even when we are faithless, our God is faithful, for he cannot deny himself. This is the wonderful grace of our Savior. And so we should be asking ourselves, do these truths of his grace still astonish us? Are we still struck by awe in these things? Do we make time? Do we have time in our busy schedules, in all the demands of our life? Do we make time? Do we have time? Do we create margin in order to meditate upon God, in order to be awed again by His majesty? Because you see, those who have an audience with His majesty will never be the same. Those who are struck by the majesty of Christ will never look at the world or any other thing or life in the same way. Everything in them will be defined by want of their almighty king. Oh, that's what I plead for for myself. And that's what I pray for for you. That every aspect of who we are will be defined by our want for the majesty of our king. As A.W. Pink said, happy the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty. Happy the soul that has been awed by a view of God's majesty. Psalm 96, the Lord made the heavens, splendor and majesty are before him, strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. May all praise and glory be to Christ. Father, you are so good. How we love you, Lord, help us to love you more. How we adore the goodness of your truth, the presence of your person, the power of your might, and the majesty that you display. May your majesty be made manifest, Lord, in us, through us, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.